Welcome, you're listening to the Kras Files podcast with Adam and it's Wednesday the 6th of December 2023 here in Sydney, Australia. Great to be on deck with all the listeners out there. I hope you guys are doing fine in very challenging and strange times as we move forward into 2024. Author and researcher Dawn Lester will be hosting the podcast tonight. It will go out in two parts because the original file was uh, just too big to upload to the website and it was being rejected. So I've had to split it into two. This is number one and the second part will go out after this. Dawn's going to be covering virus and germ theory. Uh, We've been talking about this with Dawn for many years now. A lot of it comes from her great book with David Parker, What Really Makes You Ill. And I thought it was really important times uh, indeed as we move forward into 2024 and everything that we've been been through uh, that Dawn came on and just gave us very this very special presentation looking at all her many years of research into this subjects and uh, looking at virus and germ theory and what really makes us ill and what's going on here. Dawn will be touching on some really incredible subjects on the podcast tonight including vaccinations and what all this is about so I hope you guys out there really enjoy the podcast and you get a chance to share it with all those that you care about. If you would like to support the Kras Files here, I do it by myself here on the ground in Sydney, Australia. Please go to the website krasfiles.com. Click on one of the new members banners up there. It'll take you over to Buy Me A Coffee platform. That's where we have the members now. And that's the best and only way to really support me here. Or you can buy me a few coffees just to help me keep going here um, into another year. It's challenging times. There's a lot of censorship happening. Uh, we don't know what's really going to come, but um, we do our best to survive here and continue forward in real independent media. So becoming a member just helps me to continue forward here, and you can do that over on krasfiles.com. Click on one of the banners, and I'm over there on Buy Me A Coffee platform for the Krasfiles members, uh, doing lots of podcasts almost nightly when I'm not on with my guests, um, you know, mostly doing the Nightwatch podcast, covering all the latest and going over all everything that I feel is important and whatever is in front of me. So they're great podcasts, and I hope you're getting a chance to get on the website, krasfiles.com. There's a great chat there, and... Uh, uh, everything's connected to the website anyway. We are on Telegram, the Kras Files chat. If you can jump over there and have a chat, there's a chat on the website as well. You can log in there and have a chat. And there's Gab and BitChute and some of those channels as well. So just remember, this is two parts. Uh, this is number one, and the second part will be going up after this. And it's a really incredible presentation that Dawn has put forward for our listeners out there tonight. It really, really is. I hope you guys enjoy. Contact me through the website anytime, and I'll put all the Dawn's um, important information and how you can contact her and the websites and the book information and everything up in the podcast description when it goes up on the website now in the RSS feed. Please enjoy, and uh, great to be still podcasting since 2015 it's really great to be here with you guys thank you so much to the Kras Files members for all your support and all you guys out there who go on the website and listen to all the podcasts and enjoy them you guys are awesome and let's go into 2024 and keep it all running um back again soon and i'll let uh, dawn um uh put forward her incredible presentation on virus and germ theory for the Kras Files podcast tonight. Dawn Lester is hosting the podcast. Please enjoy. Back again soon. 
Thank you very much um, for this opportunity to share some more in-depth information with your audience. Yes, this is uh, this is an important topic, and yes, we've talked about it many times. Um, but I thought in this presentation I would go a little bit deeper to some of the um, information we discovered in our journey of research that shows um, some more of the sort of historical background um, to show that when people say, oh, you know, it's been proven or they think it's all been proven by science, that there, it's really to show that there was no actual evidence for the germ theory and also to give some background as to how these things arose, how these ideas arose, how these theories arose. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is only a sample from the book and um, – I suppose it's a good idea. Well, you know, it's an opportunity to say if you're aware of um, the book or if you're not aware of it, um, you know, it, it might be something you might want to think about as a Christmas present for yourself or somebody who's just starting to learn. You know, it's a good good opportunity. So, um, yeah, kind of plug over. But, uh, you know, it is it is um, time for more people to understand that. The basis of these ideas and theories and practices um, are, are it's, it's just, you know, unscientific. They're very shaky, very unproven. And, um, you know, to really make the point absolutely clear from the very beginning that the burden of proof lies with those who propose a theory. I'm not proposing a theory, um, and in our book we show that we're not proposing theories. What we're doing is saying that the theories that are being proposed by the medical establishment um, haven't been proved. These theories don't lie on any solid scientific foundation. And so that's really where uh, some of the information I'm, I'm going to be sharing in this presentation, just to give people a bit more of a background on um, how these these theories have arisen. So this is not I'm not going to be discussing any specific virus, but just the more of the um, the overview, the underlying ideas behind it. It's the so, um, just before you start there, Dawn, it, yeah. it, it is the, the building the building blocks is it, it makes up the very foundations doesn't it of the of the medical system itself and the pharmaceutical corporations anyway that's why this is so important without the virus theory and germ theory that's what they sell all their products on um and where yes. all the fear comes from if we can just take those bricks out and we can look at this um it, it really is an incredible thing because i look at the medical system and it's really i wonder what it would be without virus and germ theory that we catch and spread things that really scares people and you're going to cover that tonight i think it's a it's an amazing thing and they make trillions of dollars off it um you know for, for how long it's a it, it's just such a massive 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 humongous lie and um it's it, it's really incredible thing and um the whole system the whole system the whole medical system to me is mostly built around that. And sure, there's a million and one little drugs um, and, and other things that they do, but the virus and germ sort of, <laughs> you know, um, it is an immense wall. Um, and, and so many people are captured by this. So you're going to break down that wall a little bit tonight. So continue forward. 
Okay, thank you. Um, well, I mean, we talk about the germ theory and the idea that there are um, infectious diseases uh, is based on what is called the germ theory, um, which really claims that germs invade the body and cause disease. Um, quite often, well, whenever you're looking at a topic, it's quite a good idea to look at definitions. And a germ is defined as any microorganism, especially one that causes disease. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. So the the whole idea that they cause disease is, is baked into the definition. Um, Sorry, that definition is from the um, Oxford Medical Dictionary. So this is a medical dictionary. So they're, you know, that's their starting point. Um, so we have to look at what the basis for that definition is. Um, so these disease causing microorganisms are also referred to as pathogens. Um, but when you have a look, you can find that the, even the medical establishment shows that germs or what they call germs are not all path pathogens. The NIH, which is a US government agency, um, has a website that's got a huge amount of information. Um, it's claimed to have more than five million archived medical journals. It also contains a variety of educational materials, um, including what they call teacher's guides. One of those teacher's guides is called Understanding Emerging and Re-Emerging Infectious Diseases. So they um, in this book, uh, it describes microorganisms as the agents that cause infectious diseases. But as what I think is an interesting comment, and it says, although microorganisms that cause disease often receive the most attention, it is important to note that most microorganisms do not cause disease. So that's that's an interesting contradiction. Uh, with reference to the microorganisms that do cause disease, this book says a true pathogen is an infectious agent that causes disease in virtually any susceptible host. So this brings in an additional factor of susceptibility, which suggests that infection is not inevitable. But this is inconsistent with what we're told about infectious diseases. We're told that, you know, the pathogen invades you and you you're infected and you become ill. So, again, these are some of the contradictions that should get people thinking, hang on a minute. How can they say one thing and um, and and also say this as well? So um, in the research, we found there were plenty of anomalies, inconsist inconsistencies and contradictions. Um, however, we're told that germ theory is based on science, but something that's based on science should follow the scientific method. Now, the scientific method is sometimes misunderstood, um, but a just general idea is that it involves the creation of a general hypothesis as the result of an observation of a natural phenomenon in the real world. This hypothesis is a suggested explanation for the observation. Experiments are then devised and conducted in order to discover more information about and gain a better understanding of the phenomenon under review. The results of these experiments usually lead to the creation of a theory which is intended to provide a more comprehensive and compelling, compelling explanation for the phenomenon that the explanation provided by the, than the explanation provided by the hypothesis. In other words, the, the experiments are to 
prove or, or to give more basis to the hypothesis that then leads to a theory. So when the medical establishment talks about the um, germ theory and the idea that germs cause disease, we would assume or we are expected to assume or think that the there are some established facts. And these facts would be that all germs have been thoroughly investigated and identified, that their ability to cause disease has been scientifically proven beyond doubt and that the theory furnishes a comprehensive and compelling explanation for germs and the mechanisms by which they cause disease. But when you look into it, this isn't the case. So, as I said before, it's a fundamental principle that the burden of proof lies with those who propose a theory. Yet in the case of the germ theory, that proof does not exist. There is no original scientific evidence that definitively proves that any germ causes any specific infectious disease. So if this idea is new to you or if this is a surprise, then um, I can assure you there are some there are many sources that corroborate this statement. And uh, one of these sources is Dr. Leveson, who gave a lecture in May 1911. So more than 100 years ago uh, in this was in London. In this lecture, he discussed his investigations and said that they had led him to the conclusion to this conclusion. He says the entire fabric of the germ theory of disease rests upon assumptions which not only have not been proved, but which are incapable of proof. And many of them can be proved to be the reverse of truth. The basic one of these unproven assumptions, wholly due to Pasteur, is the hypothesis that all the so-called infectious and contagious disorders are caused by germs. Another doctor, Dr. Bedo Bailey, corroborates this uh, a few years later in 1928 when he wrote an article um, in which he said, and I quote, I am prepared to maintain with scientifically established facts that in no single instance has it been conclusively proved that any microorganism is the specific cause of a disease. So we've got two sources that show that any evidence to support the germ theory remained conspicuous by its absence more than half a century after it had been proposed by Louis Pasteur in the early 1860s. The situation has not been rectified in the intervening decades since 1928. And of course, <laughs> we're now close to another 100 years um, since 1928. The, um, so the germ theory of disease remains unproven with overwhel overwhelming evidence to demonstrate that it also remains a fallacy. So another critic of the prevailing ideas about disease in the 19th century was Florence Nightingale. During her long nursing career, she took care of many thousands of patients, which proved to her that diseases were not individual entities with separate, separately identifiable causes. In her 19, sorry, 1860 book, I beg your pardon, Notes on Nursing, she writes, quote, I have seen diseases begin, grow up and pass into one another. So what she's talking about that um, the ordinary as she called them, fevers with which patients suffer would change and worsen to become typhoid fever and worsen again to become typhus. So these were in the wards where she was a nurse. So these diseases are regarded as specific conditions caused by distinctly different pathogens. But Florence Nightingale reports that no new infection occurred. 
She says that the worsening of the diseases were the natural result of the unhealthy conditions that the patients endured. Typically, these conditions included overcrowding, poor sanitation, lack of fresh air and lack of hygiene. Um, as I'll discuss a bit later, the practice of vaccination was not originally based on the idea that germs were the causal agents of disease. But it's worth mentioning here that after Louis Pasteur's version of the germ theory gained increased popularity in the late 19th century, the idea of germs as the causal agents of disease became an extremely useful and important tool to justify the introduction of various vaccines to combat different infectious diseases. So in the early 21st century, where we are in 2023 at the moment, vaccinations are still justified on the basis that they prevent infectious diseases. So the germ theory and the practice of vaccination are therefore inextricably interconnected. Together, they provide the foundation for a large proportion of medical establishment practices and consequently account for a large proportion of pharmaceutical industry profits. So Louis Pasteur is generally hailed as the father of the germ theory. However, he was not the originator of the basic idea that diseases were caused by external infectious agents. So um, I'm going to give a just very brief overview of some of the ideas that existed prior to the 19th century. Because I mean, everyone thinks that Pasteur is the father of the germ theory. But as I say, there's some other ideas that, that led up to um his idea being promoted by the um, the powers that be at the time, because they obviously thought it was um, useful for their purposes. So the earliest theory is reported to have been that of the Italian physician Girolamo Fracastoro, who proposed in 1546 that disease is caused by minute entities that can transmit infection. He's theory included the idea that these entities became pathogenic through heat, but he was unable to observe these entities whose existence he had proposed. Microscopes with sufficient lens magnification weren't available until more than a century later. So it was in 1676, um, and I'm probably going to make a, I'm going to butcher his name, but Antonius van Leeuwenhoek um, constructed a sufficiently powerful microscope to be able to view the small entities that are now recognized as bacteria. But he didn't propose any theories about these entities or, they, or their functions. He merely observed them and wrote extensively about his observations in a correspondence he held with the Royal Society in London. And the Royal Society is part of the establishment of the scientific establishment. So it's possible that they thought his ideas or his observations were useful. That's just a thought of mine. There is no um, I'm not saying that that was the case, but it's certainly interesting that he wrote about his observations to the Royal Society. So it was almost another century later in 1762 that Marcus Plensis a Viennese physician proposed what he called a germ theory of infectious disease. And this is a full century earlier than the theory attributed to Louis Pasteur. So these historical facts have been taken from a book called Pasteur Plagiarist Imposter uh, that's written by R.B. Pearson. And his source for this information is a book entitled Historical Review of Microbiology, that was written by F. Harrison, who is a principal professor of bacteriology at McGill University. Um, th these aren't the only people who discuss these 
um, long held beliefs and customs, you know, who give a background to it. Uh, Herbert Shelton, who's a natural hygienist, wrote about this in his 1978 article entitled Disease is Remedial Action. He said this very old idea that disease is an entity that attacks the body and wreaks as much havoc therein as possible has taken several forms through the ages and it is incarnated in the germ theory that holds sway today. In uh, there's another book, The Story of a Great Delusion by William White. Um, in it, he explains that many of these old attitudes from ancient times persisted into the 18th century. He writes, um, quote, this is interesting. Um, so, yes, quote, there was no scientific knowledge of the laws of health. Diseases were generally regarded as mysterious dispensations of providence over which the sufferers had little control. And a great part of medicine was a combination of absurdity with nastiness. So these old beliefs were gradually replaced by scientific theories, although these theories varied little from the ideas they replaced, um, because they were no more than really than variations on the basic idea that an ent uh, external entity invades and infects the body, that this infection causes illness, and that sufferers have little control over their illness. <clears throat> these um, these ideas weren't really, therefore, a, a particular advance in medical knowledge. And, and Herbert Shelton says, a hundred years ago, it was freely admitted that the nature and essence of disease was unknown. Unfortunately, we're still pretty much in the same situation and mainly because of the rigid adherence to the germ theory. In uh, his book, Confessions of a Medical Heretic, Dr. Robert Mendelssohn indicates that belief in the authority of the medical establishment is misplaced. He expands on his discussion of the problems with modern medicine by reference to similarities between beliefs, religion and modern medicine. He describes the medical establishment as the church of modern medicine and justifies his description with this statement. He says modern medicine can't survive without our faith because modern medicine is neither an art nor a science. It's a religion. Just ask why enough times and so sooner or later you'll reach the chasm of faith. Now, science is an on or should be an on in, in its real uh, sense is an ongoing process of inquiry and discovery. This means that scientists should reassess theories that have been found to be flawed and then generate more compelling explanations for the phenomena under review. But the germ theory, which can be shown to be fundamentally flawed, has not been subjected to any of this kind of rigorous reassessment. If it had been, scientists would have discovered that the theory is contradicted by a significant volume of empirical evidence, which is normally regarded as paramount. The intransigence of the scientific community on this topic has turned the germ theory into dogma, dogma not science. Now, Dr. Mendelssohn, in his statement, says people should ask the question why, um, but we actually should be asking the question how as well. Um, but Unfortunately, if we were to do so, we'd reach what Dr. Mendelssohn calls the chasm of faith, which is probably going to be something like, um, trust me, I'm a doctor, that kind or trust me, I'm a scientist. So it's firmly believed by the medical establishment that Louis Pasteur's germ theory was 
scientifically proven beyond any doubt. But it has been revealed that the uh, so-called science, <laughs> in, in air quotes, that the science he used in his experiments was not as meticulous as has been claimed. In a 1995 book by um, historian jo Dr. Gerald Geisen, it's called The Private Science of Louis Pasteur, um, there's a, a, a discussion of Louis Pasteur's work and that involved a comparison of his personal notebooks with his published papers. Um, the book Virus Mania um, shows some of the or includes some of the extracts. One of them says during his lifetime, Pasteur permitted absolutely no one, not even his closest co-workers, to inspect his notes. Um, and there's another extract from Dr. Geisen's book that said Pasteur arranged with his family that the book should also remain closed to all, even after his death. So we can make some, you know, ideas or we can, you know, speculate, speculate on, you know, why he would have made those kinds of requests. But it does raise the question of why his world famous theory um, and the work behind it or his work that's based or that bases um, that the theory is based on, that he wouldn't want that to be shared with everybody. Um, and there's a, a rather revealing quote in, again, from Virus Mania that says that th this is their idea. They say the conclusion is unavoidable. Pasteur deliberately deceived the public, including especially those scientists most familiar with his published work. <clears throat> so keeping his notebooks private meant that, um, you know, the, the public and the, the scientific community uh, didn't get access to um, his ideas and theories and uh, the work that or investigations that led up to it. So, you know, I mean, there's lots of details. And it's not necessary to, you know, to go over all of them. But we do need to have a look at the basic assumption about infectious diseases and the meaning of the word infection. So, again, you know, let's have a look at the uh, definition of infection, which is invasion of the body by harmful organisms, um, pathogens, as they're also called. So it's clear that from this, this definition says that an infection is synonymous with an invasion by mi microorganisms and subsequent disease. But this is misleading because the body has endogenous microorganisms that are also claimed to be able to cause disease. So on the Mayo Clinic web page that says uh, called infectious diseases, they say many organisms live in and on our bodies. They're normally harmless or even helpful. But under certain conditions, some organisms may cause disease. So here we have yet another anomaly. How can these organisms be both harmless and cause disease? Uh, I looked, but unfortunately, the Mayo Clinic web page doesn't give any further information about the conditions that they say, uh, you know, the certain conditions that might give rise to the microorganisms becoming pathogenic. Um, but they suggest that germs or what they call germs constantly mutate to overpower the immune system and cause disease. So we go back to the teacher's guide on the NIH website, the Understanding Emerging and Re-Emerging Infectious Diseases, that refers to the body's normal flora and says that they, that they do not cause disease because their growth is kept under control 
by the host's defence mechanisms and by the presence of other microorganisms. So the book claims that endogenous and invading microorganisms compete with each other, but that under normal circumstances, the invaders are successfully suppressed. However, if the defence mechanisms uh, are weak, then the body may be overwhelmed by opportunistic pathogens, which they describe as potentially infectious agents that rarely cause disease in individuals with healthy immune systems. So we now have reference to the immune system, um, but reliance on the immune system to prevent an invading pathogen from causing disease is problematic. The function of the immune system is said to be to attack and destroy pathogens. This means that a strong and fully functioning immune system would be able to destroy all invaders and that anyone with a strong immune system should therefore have no infectious agents, potential or otherwise, within their bodies. Yet microorganisms claimed to be pathogenic have been found in or on the bodies of healthy people. One explanation for this situation is that some pathogens can exist in the body in a dormant state, but a strong immune system should not permit the presence of any pathogen, even in this so-called dormant state, um, and so that they can be activated later when the immune system has become weakened. As, as you can tell, there are some real problems with the idea that the immune system protects you and that everything, there's a, there's a battleground going on and they can be dormant and something can happen to um, activate them and weaken. And, but these, these situations are never really explained. Um, the germ theory is not only embedded in the um, sort of what we call the medical establishment system, but also to some extent or to a large extent in the alternative health community as well. So, um, you know, it's really to show that um, it's not just about providing pharmaceuticals to deal with infectious diseases, but also, uh, if you like, natural remedies. But if that's based on the idea that there's an infection, then that's still basing the the remedy or the therapy or the um, treatment on something that is this is a misleading or misunderstood, uh, misunderstood on um, basis of how the body works. Um, I mean, we've got lots of um, uh, media coverage and it certainly goes back to uh, for a long time about the idea that you know, the infectious diseases are emerging and getting worse. And I mean, there's a 2007 World Health Report, uh, WHO World Health Report um, that said infectious diseases are emerging at a rate that has not been seen before. So, again, 2007, we're talking a long time ago. So they've been starting with this fear mongering for quite some time and ramping it up, obviously, over the decades. I mean, it didn't start in 2007, but it's, you know, it shows how far back they've been trying to. Um, get people to be afraid of these infectious diseases and that they're getting worse. Um, the, the thing is that even within the context of the germ theory, that there's no explanation for the, this kind of idea that there's an accelerated rate of pro proliferation of germs. Um, so really, it's just a question of um, propagating the germ theory. I mean, there are lots of reasons behind it. Some of them are economical, you know, political, geopolitical, um, which is I'm not going to, into 
uh, in this discussion. But of course, another basis um, for this um, idea being perpetuated, as as you said at the beginning, is is because it supports the idea of vaccinations. So let's go into a little bit more history of vaccinations. So there's a, a long standing theory of belief that people can become immune to a disease after an exposure to um, to that disease. So once you've had a disease, you then become immune. I mean, this goes back centuries. I mean, there's a, a Greek historian, Thucydides, who was a contemporary of Hippocrates, uh, he claimed that people who survived the plague of Athens were not later reinfected by the same disease. So this early belief developed into the idea that a mild form of any disease provides protection against a more serious attack of the same disease. It also inspired the creation of different methods to induce the mild form of the disease on the basis, obviously, inducing the mild form gives people protection. And this and one of these methods um, is as you can probably gather, led to the practice of it, what started as inoculation or variolation, as it was also called. This was before vaccination. Um, I mean, Edward Jenner is credited as being the originator, originator, I beg your pardon, of vaccination. But he didn't originate the practice of inoculation. I mean, that was um, practiced in various places around the world many centuries before he was born. Uh, in fact, some sources uh, credit the Chinese as the originators of the practice of variolation or inoculation during the 10th century. Again, you know, various sources show different ideas about where these practices came from. So inoculation, which is the precursor of vaccination, was introduced into England in the early 18th century which was a period when illness was often interpreted by reference to local traditions or sorry, superstitions and invariably treated with a wide variety of crude methods and toxic substances. So the practice of inoculation involved taking some matter, in other words, the pus, from the pustules or sores of a person suffering from a disease and introducing that matter into the bloodstream of a healthy person via a number of deliberately made cuts on their arms or legs. Uh, but prior to inoculation, these patients had to undergo other procedures such as uh, these things are called dieting, purging and bleeding that were administered by physicians. At that period of time, inoculation was exclusively a custom of the middle and upper classes, as they were the only people who could afford the services of a physician. So I, I um, cited a, a small extract from the story of a great delusion um, earlier, but I'm, I'm going to read a, a somewhat um, longer extract from that because it gives an idea of what was happening in the early 18th century when inoculation was first introduced <coughs> into England. So here's the quote. Those who fancy there could be any wide or effective resistance to inoculation in 1721 misapprehend the conditions of the time. There was no scientific knowledge of the laws of health. Diseases were generally regarded as mysterious dispensation of providence over which the sufferers had little control. And a great part of medicine was a combination of absurdity with nastiness. It would not be difficult to compile a series of recipes from the pharmacopoeia of that day, which would alternately excite amusement, surprise and disgust and to describe medical practice from which it is marvellous that ever patient escaped alive. But so much must pass without saying. 
suffice it to assert that to inoculation there was little material for opposition, rational or irrational, and that what we might think the natural horror of transfusing the filth of smallpox into the blood of health was neutralised by the currency of a multitude of popular remedies which seemed to owe their fascination to their outrageous and loathsome characteristics. The practice of inoculation uh, also appeared in America in the early 18th century, courtesy of Cotton Mather. Uh, I mean, this this is how it's reported. Um, and it's, uh, it's said that he actually learned of this practice from his Sudanese slave. So, again, that goes back to other parts of the world for this, the origination of these um, practices. So uh, the, the English medical establishment, I know we often talk about things like the Rockefeller um, um, medical system that began in the early 20th century. Um, but the in English medical establishment was um, quite well fa was founded in these around the 17th century. So you're in the well in earlier in an earlier form, <clears throat> not the way it is now, but it, it still started. Um, they were generally supportive of inoculation, despite the complete absence of any scientific efficacy, uh, sorry, scientific evidence for its efficacy or safety. And in his book, uh, The Case Against Vaccination, Dr. Bedo Bailey explains that inoculations frequently caused the disease they were supposed to prevent. He also discusses the introduction in 1721, which, and this is, a, he quotes, being acclaimed by the Royal College of Physicians as highly salutary to the human race, was assiduously carried out until 1840, when, on account of the disastrous spread of smallpox which resulted, it was made a penal offence. So here we have the introduction of um, inoculation in 1721, that lasted for 120 years until they realised that it was a problem. And uh, then it became a penal offence. So it's amazing how the medical establishment can quickly change their view. Um, I mean, at the time, there was the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, these were the English establishment um organizations. So the Royal College of Physicians was considered a prestigious organization, but those who were responsible for their policies had clearly failed to undertake a genuine scientific investigation of the practice of inoculation. As Dr. Bedo Bailey explains, inoculation was discontinued in England in 1840, but it was replaced by vaccination. But vaccination was based on exactly the same unproven theory, which is that the introduction of noxious matter into the bloodstream of an otherwise healthy person would provide protection from smallpox. The only difference between inoculation and vaccination is that inoculation introduced matter taken from the pustules of a person suffering with smallpox and vaccination introduced matter taken from the pustules of a cow suffering with cowpox. And the Latin um, word for cow is the origin of the, of the word vac or vaccination, or, or so it's vacca, the Latin for cow. So that's where that comes from. So the practice of vaccination originated from the work of Edward Jenner in the late 18th century. That's when he started, when he discovered a belief amongst dairy maids that an attack of cowpox, which is an ulceration of the cow's udder, 
and believed to be transmissible to humans, was said to provide a certain degree of relief from smallpox. It was also believed that cowpox and smallpox were related diseases, which explains the belief that any attack of smallpox that occurred subsequent to an attack of cowpox would only be very mild. I mean, these ideas that they were related again, um, they were the ideas of the time. I'm not saying that they are related in any way. So it is reported that Edward Jenner accepted the Dairy Maid's belief about cowpox. But there is actually uh, an interesting twist to this tale because Edward Jenner at the time actually had a, a, held a different view, which William White again explains in the story of a great Del delusion, where he says cows in Gloucestershire were milked by men as well as by women. And men would sometimes milk cows with hands foul from dressing the heels of horses afflicted with what was called grease. With this grease, they infected the cows and the pox which followed was pronounced by Jenner to have all the virtue against smallpox, which the dairy maids claimed for cowpox. Again, you know, <laughs> interesting ideas. Um, so William White further states that Jenner published a paper on his horse grease theory, but it was not well received. Um, and so he returned to his cowpox theory. Uh, I mean, this might sound like kind of minor, but again, it shows what Edward Jenner, uh, what Edward Jenner's um, experimentation and his contribution to humanity, which is an, a different method of um, poisoning the bloodstream in the name of protection from disease. I mean, it's crazy, really. So um, another doctor, Dr. John Hodge, uh, who's an American or was an American physician, it's another one of, um, who began his medical career as a supporter of vaccination. However, he later conducted his own investigation into the subject, and this led him to become aware that vaccinations did not prevent disease, but instead were harmful. His investigation inspired him to write a booklet entitled The Vaccination Sup uh, Superstition, in which he lists his objection to the smallpox vaccination. He says... After a careful consideration of the history of vaccination and smallpox, I am firmly convinced that vaccination is not only useless and but positively injurious, that there is no evidence worthy of the name on record to prove that vaccination either prevents or mitigates smallpox. So again, you know, yet more people speaking out against it at the time. Fortunately, we still have their writings to to be able to show what people were writing about at the time, although these documents and booklets um, may become more difficult to, to find if you're doing an ordinary search on the most popular search engine. Um, so back, back, to the, back to this. In his role as the originator of the practice of vaccination, Edward Jenner is regarded by the medical establishment as a hero. Yeah, um, but he's a false hero and his accolades are undeserved. That's my opinion. Um, I And I, I think there may be a few people who might agree. So although he's often referred to as a, as a physician, he actually didn't study uh, or study for the exams or even pass the medical examinations that would have been necessary for him to qualify as a physician. It's also documented that Edward Jenner purchased his medical degree, although this wasn't an uncommon practice. So he's not the only one that may well have um, taken that course of action. But, you know, for the most part, we don't hear about this information through the mainstream. That's for sure. So also his um, Edward Jenner was um, 
had a qualification as a fellow of the Royal Society, but this wasn't anything to do with his, you know, uh, vaccination or any medical matters. But he um, he uh, published a study on the life of the cuckoo. So the only paper about vaccination that he submitted to the Royal Society was rejected on the basis that it lacked proof, which is, again, very interesting. Other than this rejected paper, no further scientific work was submitted by Edward Jenner to the Royal Society for approval on the topic of vaccination. And again, Herbert Shelton has reported this and he says neither Jenner nor any of his successors ever represented the claims for this vaccine together with proofs to the Royal Society. So during the 19th century, there was a great deal of opposition in England to the practice of vaccination. And this led to the creation in 1866 of an anti-vaccination movement, particularly after the enactment of the Compulsory Vaccination Acts. The first one was in the 1850s and the 1866 was more stringent. So that's where this opposition movement rose. Uh, it gained momentum after further and more stringent compulsory vaccination acts had been passed and larger numbers of people became aware of the dangers of vaccines. This movement would eventually include a number of eminent physicians of the time. Two of them are cited by Dr. Walter Hadwin in his book, The Case Against Vaccination. He states, uh, Dr. Cruikshank and Dr. Crichton have knocked the bottom out of this grotesque superstition and shown that vaccination has no scientific leg to stand on. And Dr. Cruikshank and Dr. Crichton are, are pretty were pretty well known and uh, eminent physicians of the time. So they are quite um, important names to show that they had shown for themselves that there were there was no, as, as Dr. Hadwin called, no scientific leg to stand on. Um, at the time, Dr. Cruikshank was a professor of pathology and bacteriology at King's Cross, uh, sorry, King's College. Um, and like Dr. Crichton, he was originally supportive of vaccination, but after conducting his own investigation into the subject, he changed his professional opinion. He is recorded to have stated that the medical profession should give up vaccination. So that's um, a pretty profound statement from somebody who was a professor of pathology and bacteriology. In 1896, the movement was renamed the National Anti-Vaccination League of Great Britain. Its members included some of the qualified physicians um, who's quoted in various places in our book, as well as the two eminent physicians referred to above. And these um, these people supported the movement once they had investigated the matter for themselves and discovered the complete absence of any scientific evidence for its use. Other notable supporters of the British anti-vaccination movement were the scientists Alfred Russell Wallace and Herbert Spencer and the author George Bernard Shaw. So the attitude of the medical establishment towards anti-vaccination towards the anti-vaccination movement in the 19th century was extremely derogatory <laughs> for obvious reasons. Despite the um, presence of eminent uh, physicians and scientists who were supportive of, of the, uh, the efforts of the anti-vaccination movement, um, unfortunately, this disparaging attitude has continued and remains firmly in place in the early 20th century. In a 
February 2008 bulletin of the WHO uh, is entitled Vaccination Greatly Reduces Disease, Disability, Death and Inequity Worldwide. And this is how they suggest people uh, address people who question vaccines. They say the best way in the long term is to refute wrong allegations at the earliest opportunity by providing scientifically valid data. I personally would respond to this by saying that the genuine scientifically valid data to be used to refute the wrong allegations with respect to the efficacy and safety of vaccines can be demonstrated by scientific investigations conducted by physicians such as Drs. Crichton, Cruikshank, Hodge and Hadwin, to name just a few. All of them have concluded that vaccines have no basis in science, nor are they safe or effective. The wrong allegations are therefore those that claim otherwise. So that's uh, some background to vaccination. And we're talking about science. So there's a section um, that I'm quoting certain parts out um, that's called scientific experimentation, because I think people get an idea of what science is about. And maybe they're uh, a little overawed by the idea of science taking place in these wonderful laboratories with all this fantastic technology and equipment. Sorry. So science and technology have generated many innovations that have profoundly changed the way people live. These changes have accelerated substantially over the past three centuries since and largely as the result of the Industrial Revolution. Now, I just want to say here, I'm I'm not a Luddite, Norris David. Um, we're not coming from the perspective that all technology and science is bad or you know, difficult uh, or um, detrimental, I should say. The point is that the they're not all beneficial and there are some changes and some uh, innovations that are have been proven to be proven to be detrimental. One of the main consequences has been the almost total obeisance to science in the belief that it is the only method through which knowledge can be attained obtained. So Dr. Mendelssohn's simile that modern medicine is like a religion can, in fact, probably be extrapolated to apply to science in which scientists have assumed the mantle of authority and become a new kind of priesthood. Now, I'm not saying that's all scientists. Um, there are many who are open to um, the, the true nature of science as a method of inquiry. But there are many who are deeply, deeply um, attached to their training and their learning and their own field of knowledge and they are unable to look beyond it and that's why a lot um, in many cases science has actually become scientism so i mean real real science you know i mean you shouldn't have to say real science but i mean science is a process of discovery um but it's actually become largely authoritarian because his teachings are that um, scientific knowledge is the sole repository of truth, that only those who accept the consensus view are the genuine scientists and that any dissenting views are to be vilified and described in terms such as unscientific pseudoscience or similarly disparaging labels. The field of knowledge, uh, well, certainly uh, that I think the field of knowledge that has suffered pretty much the greatest harm from this dogmatic approach is the field of health in which dissenters are labelled as quacks. 
But the use of insults uh, and ad hominem ad hominem attacks um, have no has no place in a genuine scientific debate. The greatest error of scientists in this field, which is often referred to as medical science, originates from a false perception of the human body as essentially a machine of separate parts that are fundamentally chemical in nature. This error has been compounded by the equally erroneous idea that diseases are the, are the result of an attack on the body, mainly, but not exclusively, by germs. Furthermore, most scientists in the field of medicine regard the living human body as if it were inert. They effectively deny that the body itself has a role of any significance in the production of illness or in the res restoration of health. To add insult to injury, the medical establishment maintains the stance that it is only their healthcare system, which operates from the basis of these ideas, that is capable of correctly addressing matters pertaining to health. And it just simply isn't the case. So science is fast becoming the authority for the entirety of life in the 21st century. But genuine science must be flexible. It must be open to new information that may require a revision of the prevailing theories or even a reassessment of the techniques and practices used by the scientific community. One of the main reasons for the problems within medical science and the healthcare system it promotes is that most of the science is conducted within the confines of the laboratory. This means that laboratory experimentation is now almost entirely equated with medical science. This is a fundamental error and one that imposes a severe limitation on the ability of science to understand living organisms. Certain aspects of medical science involve empirical evidence that is obtained from the experiences of real people in the real world. For example, adverse events resulting from the use of medicines or vaccines that have, that have been previously approved and released onto the market. Empirical evidence is, however, largely ignored when assessing the claims of medical science. <clears throat> it is acknowledged that some tests and experiments are conducted outside of the laboratory environment, although they usually follow extensive experimentation within the laboratory. So most of these initial experiments are conducted on human or animal tissues, cells or molecules. Uh, increasingly more so, they're, they're looking to using molecules. And they involve the use of a variety of chemical substances that are tested for their reactions on various tissues, cells and molecules in the hope that a beneficial effect will be observed. Um, they say that a new drug takes approximately 10 years to develop from the initial experiment in which an apparently beneficial effect has been observed to its availability on the market. This period of 10 years includes the various clinical trials that are conducted with healthy human subjects on whom the side effects of the drugs are tested. Many of these trials are, however, conducted over relatively short periods of time, often a few months or sometimes only a few weeks. And these often relate to drugs that are then to be used for um, far longer than these few weeks or few months and um, could be many years. And sometimes people are told, you know, they're, they're to be used for the rest of their life. They need to continue taking these drugs. So it's generally perceived that the results from laboratory experiments have a direct relevance to human health. But the fact that experiments conducted by medical science are performed on tissues, cells or molecules raises a fundamental question about how these experiments relate to the functioning of a living human body, whether in health or disease. I mean, there are some scientists who've raised questions about this, and one of the most um, prominent uh, from 
um, my research is Dr. Harold Hillman, who is a PhD um, a scientist, not a, not a medical doctor, uh, who has London. I mean, sadly, he's not with us anymore. He died a few years ago. Um, had London University degrees in medicine and physiology and a doctorate in biochemistry. And so he's eminently qualified to comment on the problems he discovered. The investigations he conducted over his long career have resulted in his bold assertion that most preparation methods directly affect the cells or tissues to be examined and even change their structure. In other words, the actual methods can affect what the scientists are observing in their laboratories. Uh, he he had a website, um, unfortunately that ceased to be active after he died in 2016, but I managed to, to um, access some of those papers. One of them was a 2013 paper he entitled A Serious Indictment of Modern Cell Biology and Neurobiology, and in which he refers to uh, molecular biology as the chemistry of living intact biological systems. So which is one of the key features that we need to think about, which is that most well, that laboratory experimentation does not investigate living intact biological systems. Another of his papers, a 2011 paper, is called Cell Biology at the Beginning of the 21st Century is in Dire Straits, which I think speaks volumes. So he talks about the preparations required for a number of different laboratory procedures. And I, I think it's worthwhile um, understanding just how much is done in order to view these these samples. So he says, when a tissue is prepared for histology, histochemistry, electron microscopy or immunochemistry, an animal is killed. The tissue is excised. It is fixed or frozen. It is embedded. It is sectioned. It is rehydrated. It is stained. It is mounted. It is radiated by light, by light or bombarded by electron beams. Now, I think it's pretty clear that whatever has been uh, extracted from a living, organ living organism, and again, whether an animal has been killed or not, <coughs> or whether it's just some tissue from uh, a human sample, it it's pretty obvious that the sample is no longer alive after it has been subjected to all these procedures. And um, Dr. Hillman explains in the 2013 paper that there's a complete lack of recognition of the effects of such preparation procedures on the tissue sample to be examined. And he says, biologists have shown little interest in the effects that the procedures they use have on the structure and chemistry of the tissues they are studying. Now, this is extremely important point because all these different cell culture experiments and everything that people are talking about, they're making assumptions and uh, interpreting the results in a particular way. Um, but just not taking into account the effects of the procedures they've used. So um, in addition to the effects of the procedures on the chemistry of the tissue, the effects on its structure must also be considered. And again, Dr. Hillman's um, criticism of the preparation procedure includes the fact that the structures um, are affected. And he says that quite often these procedures generate artifacts that are then perceived to be genuine features of the tissue sample or cell that is under examination. 
And he says this has led them into the study of many artifacts and distortions of the chemistry of living systems. Uh, an artifact um, is, is just an artificial structure that is not present in the living tissue. And he has shown that there are a number of the artifacts or number of the so-called structures that are, are within a cell are in fact artifacts. And um, that, again, is, is incredibly revealing when uh, so things like uh, receptors, cell receptors, um, he claims and by his decades of um, long investigation, he says that um, receptors are artifacts because they don't exist. They're not present in the living tissue. And there are huge implications for the idea. Um, but I mean, that's receptors are just one of them. So. Again, within um, virology, bacteriology, well, certainly virology, um, they use the electron microscope, as probably many people have started to learn about over the last few years. Um, uh, but again, Dr. Hillman provides a revealing statement about the results of the preparation procedures used for this technology. He says electron microscopists have ignored the dictates of solid geometry and most of the apparent structures they have detected are artifacts of their preparation procedures. And again, this has huge implications for everything that's been happening over the last few years. So, um, you know, the profound consequences of this, just this one statement alone, that they're ignoring the dictates of solid geometry uh, for germ theory, but, you know, and especially for viruses, as we've said, with the last few years. Um, the other thing, of course, is that whatever the sample is, it's been re removed from the living organism, uh, which is be which means it's been removed from its normal environment. And that environment was where it was an integral part of an intact living system. And this is one of the problems where they take parts from a living organism and and think that they can make assumptions about how it functions within that living organism. I mean, to be honest, there, you know, there are very few conclusions that can be drawn from experiments that take place under the very specific conditions of the laboratory environment and then assume to be meaningful to the health of a living human body. And again, that's my opinion. The internal environment of a human body bears no resemblance whatsoever to the artificial environment created by scientists for their experiments in the laboratory. And again, the laboratory environment itself is is pretty sterile um, and it's just all, uh, you know, technology. So, again, I'm, I'm as I say, not not allowed, not saying that technology isn't useful. It has its uses. Um, it's just. Sometimes it's used inappropriately, which is probably putting it mildly. Um, it's also inappropriate to take the results of experiments that test the reactions of chemicals with dead tissue cells or molecules and extrapolate them to living uh, intact living organisms, which don't respond and react to chemicals in the way that can be predicted by experiments that are conducted just on those individual pieces of tissue. So. This is a, a major flaw in the field of medical science, but it's this idea that permits scientists continue to believe that laboratory experiments conducted on so-called germs are appropriate in order to gain a better understanding of the processes of disease. 
So I realise where we are with time. Um, I'm I'm going to try and get through this, but I've still got quite a lot to go. Uh, so the next section really is talking about viruses because that's the that's been the big uh, the <clears throat> the big talking piece over the last four years. So the uh, a virus is defined by the medical establishment as a minute particle that is capable of replication, but only within living cells. Again, I'm saying I'm not saying that's what a virus is. I'm saying that's how it's defined. Um, these so-called these things called viruses are claimed to have a particular structure, which is that they 